0: Just when the mass of commodities slides towards puerility, the puerile itself becomes a special commodity. This is epitomized by the gadget. Reified man advertises the proof of his intimacy with the commodity. The fetishism of commodities reaches moments of fervent exaltation, similar to the ecstasies of the convulsions and miracles of the old religious fetishism. The only use which remains here is the fundamental use of submission. Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. I'm Chris. I'm Kevin. I'm Jason. And I'm Jenny. Today, we're going to be talking about the disappearance of the concept of the future, as is elucidated by Mark Fisher in his writings about the slow cancellation of the future.
1: Okay, so the slow cancellation of the future in the Mark Fisher lecture that we... Listen to and the sort of topic that it's a theme that kind of is woven throughout a lot of his writing stuff that we've all been spending some time getting familiar with is this notion that you can define the period in which we're living by this sort of what he calls a temporal malaise Um, and what he means by that is this kind of loss of the sense of historicity of a a sort of flattening of time of the sense of time and the sort of loss of a forward momentum of culture like the loss of specificity about the periodization of culture his example is uh expectations of music as being sort of symptomatic of the flattening of time but he just uses it as an example that i guess we're going to get into but the other stuff that we that we read had to do with the tapering off of scientific innovation and technological progress so what we're trying to examine is the, the proposed connection between the two, between the, the, the sort of material kind of, uh, foundations of the declining sense of history and of growth and of each sort of decade or period having its sort of distinct culture the way that the not too distant past felt like it was constantly moving forward, both scientifically and technologically and also culturally and politically.
0: So the question I would like to pose to all of us that we should keep in our minds while we're talking about this stuff is has capitalism exhausted its progressive potential? Oh, I think that's like,
2: like there's no question.
0: There's no there's no question that capitalism has exhausted its progressive potential as like politically, but here are we extending that loss into Scientific innovation and cultural production
3: it's exhausted, it's like creative and aesthetic potential. yes, for sure,
0: yeah, so basically, what I came away with from reading these articles and listening to these lectures is that we've got a we've got concrete proof that capitalism at this point is just recycling its refuse and trying to pass it off as innovation.
1: It's, it's a pretty bold contention, too, when you consider that from the sort of liberal techno-utopians who are ardent defenders of the of the free market, um, they'd always talk about innovation as, you know, that we're living in some kind of revolutionary digital age where uh, artificial intelligence and automation and the internet and all these things are propelling us past the Jetsons into a kind of future that we can barely even comprehend how wonderful it's going to be. And that's like people from Elon Musk to Andrew Yang to Elizabeth Warren to, you know, the the whole spectrum of the like Silicon Valley type universal basic income technocratic liberals.
0: But also it's basically the people who deserve the wall the most.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it's also a prevailing notion on the left um which is it's it's an unchallenged notion that we live in a time of rapidly progressing technological advancement what's interesting to me is that i think despite the fact that a lot of us seem to to think and believe that at least outwardly we also you know we make memes that say yeah so far this is a pretty dumb future
0: yes <laughs> this is this is the this dumbest future
1: it doesn't feel utopian in in any way um it feels fairly dystopian it's more uh it's the sort of future of of dystopian sci-fi rather than the future of utopian sci-fi
0: it's blade runner we're uh working into the future of blade runner so by 2049 like things are going to be pretty fucking bleak <laughs> So one of the things that Fisher uses to demonstrate how stagnant things are now after the end of history is the idea that music doesn't progress as quickly as it once did, and that the only real innovation in popular music has been in production and distribution and not really in sound, which... I think, for the most part, seems to ring pretty true. Like, I mean, of course, there's there's all kinds of strange underground stuff that would freak people out to hear now, that would definitely freak people from 20 years ago out. But what I think Fisher is talking about is popular culture. The stuff that is produced by companies to make money and not just by people in their garage to put on band camp, you know? Um,
3: well, I don't even think it's just... Um, popular culture, because I don't, I don't, I find punk made in, and hardcore made in 2019, 2018, in very few ways, like, distinguishable from punk made 10 years ago. Um, there's, like, been some, you oh, know, no, there's differences in, like, post-hardcore, and, I mean, there, of course, I'm speaking generally, right? Um, but it but it all not still wrong. feels very um, familiar. Uh, very rarely do I listen to even, yeah, like it, indie music even, and think, oh, this this sounds new.
0: Right, like one of my favorite newer innovations is sort of just the retooling of post punk, mm-hmm. where it kind of just is slightly more aggressive and has a cleaner sound. And maybe less like uh, silly-sounding vocals, but it's essentially sure. just the same type of stuff that that Bauhaus was writing and that you know the the bands of the the early post-punk and goth scene. Um, sure. All that's it's it's essentially the same sort of thing. The, the only, like really, if you if you took that music and you played it for people from in the early '80s, they would think that it was very strange how good the recorded quality was and that would be about it. You know, I I think I, I mentioned this to you earlier, Jason, that you take the, like the breakdown from Sabbath, bloody Sabbath, which came out in, Oh shit. When did that come out? So you take the breakdown from Sabbath, bloody Sabbath in 1973, and then you show that to, a you know, a Beatles fan from four years earlier. And they're going to think that it sounds like an abomination, and wonder what the hell happened to this guy's guitar. Why does it sound so deep? Why does it sound so heavy? Like, where's the melody? What's going on? Or, or
1: maybe they'd be like thrilled by the possibilities that this new way of playing might open up the doors for things. But in either case, it would
0: right, right.
1: In any case, they're going to be like,
0: Yeah. yeah, they're going to be shocked by it. Now, if you take pretty much anything written today and you play it in the early 90s there's going to be nothing about that that shocks anybody any pop song any punk rock song any even any metal song there's going to be nothing about it that is so shocking to people that they would wonder what the hell it was you know it's not going to be like marty mcfly playing you know van halen (laughs) at the school (laughs) dance or anything you know
2: right no that's definitely true the music the you know the the culture that I I enjoy uh really the 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 newest innovations to it all ended in the 90s for sure uh maybe maybe reaching to the end of the 90s but that's about as far as it goes uh but you know honestly g- going through Fisher's um uh material I, f- I found it like really interesting really compelling and making an interesting uh argument but the sort of what we're what's that discussion right here is the one element that I wasn't absolutely convinced uh, was the case uh, I'm just sort of like taking it as a as an initial, You know, like you know, swallow this pill and then see where it go, where this sort of line of thought takes you, and it goes to some interesting places. But I had to sort of just swallow the pill, which is that there is a cultural malaise, a a stultification of cultural productivity uh, that isn't going anywhere. And I I can, you know, I I, like I can recognize it for myself. I, I can say, yeah, that's probably true in the world around me, but I don't know if that's You know, like I've only lived my life. I haven't lived other people's lives in other places and other times. And it's hard to step outside of your your self and uh, look at it at at your cultural surroundings comparatively across time. Like, what what am I really being fair in comparing uh, culture generally, or is it really that I'm just getting older and detached from the world and and not uh, connected into the new interesting things? Uh, that are happening around me or or was what I connected to uh, when I was younger felt a lot newer because I was young and wide eyed yeah. and open to new, th- you know, the, the, to whatever the world had to give me. But now I've sort of experienced things a lot more and can stuff things into categories and recognize patterns and that sort of thing.
0: Well, Kevin, I definitely think that you are detached from, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, what's going on. But, yeah, I mean, and, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that to be insulting or even to joke, but like, you know, you're self admittedly detached from pop culture, and I think it's all like- of us, except for maybe Jenny, are to a certain extent. <laughs> it's. But I, it's true. I at least try to understand what's going on, even if I don't like it. You know what I mean? Sure. Like
3: you know who Billie Eilish is, at least, right? <laughs>
0: right like i have listened to several of her songs because i don't like not understanding cultural references
3: <laughs> yeah i i think this this is my cue probably so I, I think there are a few things and i and i think there's like a very like simple analysis of this argument which, which kind of like um alludes to that like uh there's like there's like a nostalgia in things that sound or look or feel familiar and are easier right you And I think there's truth to that. I don't don't want to take away from that, right? That like things that sound like 90s R&B feel like a childhood when I (laughs) was happier and less aware, Um, even though I think I had a pretty um, fucked up and aware childhood in a lot of ways, it was still um, less stressful than the pressures of adulthood. All, of, all things considered. So I, I think that's fair to say, but I think even more so than, than just like nostalgia in, in throwback sounds and, you know, appearances, aesthetics and feelings is that there, there's a loss of whatever artistic infrastructure we may have even had um certainly that's the case there's
0: no ability to make money off music anymore
3: well sure well it's gone and and i guess not even i'm not even just coming from that angle i mean as um a dance educator right like there there's no funding for um the arts we know that And, and so there's obviously something to be said about DIY DIY culture, and I do think that we've seen advances in terms of like people having access to education that they haven't had. But I think the way that education is teaching, particularly young people, um, about how to create and how to engage um, with art uh, across mediums, is is really troublesome to someone like me because what's happening is they're sitting in front of YouTube and they're not creating collaboratively the way you would if you were, you know, in a band or the way you would if you were in a dance class, right? Um, Because it's you, you're learning from a person on a screen who you're not able to interact with and not just in art education, but in education in general, Like, we have to build more cooperative and collaborative learning environments that are participatory and more of a relationship. And when that's removed from the equation, people can't think critically. We know that of education in general. And I think that's perhaps, and I know I'm biased, obviously, I think that's even more true in art because it's such, it's literally a creative process which is not to say that like biology or whatever else doesn't there's no room for creativity uh I'm not educated enough to know but I you know I do know obviously that music is a creative endeavor dance is a creative endeavor painting is a creative endeavor and if you're not developing your skills and your understanding of your creativity in a setting that is um you know collaborative then i i don't i think that's in part why we're we're seeing or not seeing you know anything really innovative culturally
1: you don't think that like biological innovation is uh (laughs) just like on the cutting edge of giving us like wings and horns and stuff
3: (laughs) yeah man (laughs) that's what i mean
1: (laughs) biological creativity is the last realm of experimentation
0: So, one of the things that Fisher talks about, which I think is more uh, appropriate in the British context than in ours, but is still, it still pertains to our situation, is he talks about the existence of tuition free art schools in Great Britain and the way that those led to a bunch of art students like hanging out and experimenting with new types of music and sound and. Uh, film and art and how there was an explosion of creativity as a result of that and that you know in the post-war era so you get i don't know just um, the great acts that set the tone for popular music most of them come out of come out of england mm-hmm. like i mean just to name a few like the beatles black sabbath you know like iron maiden the the new wave of british heavy metal well, like yeah. creating an entirely new sound of of music and yeah and just,
3: even if you don't know the artists you know the sound you know
0: yeah right exactly and to a, to a lesser extent that's true in the united states as well you had the we had free tuition in a lot of american universities and if not free much more affordable tuition and you get a lot of art that comes out of those universities On top of that, you had the idea that you could be a musician and earn a living from it because the necessities of life were more affordable. That's not the case anymore. The necessities of life are not more affordable anywhere in the United States than they were back then. And this is not just keeping up with inflation. Wages have remained stagnant since that period as well. So, I, I was talking to my dad the other day, and he was telling me about when he was an assistant manager at a locally owned pizza place in, uh, you know, South Texas. He made as much as I did. He made as, he made as much as I did as, like, the operations manager of a company with 15 stores, you know.
1: And just a few years ago, right?
0: Just a few years ago. And, I, you know, I was making barely enough to to cover my bills and that was my level of responsibility was making sure that 15 stores ran and that was normal because i live in a lived in a terrible place <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, right when we think about so there are specifics um you sort of unique characteristics of the british and probably general european um the change in the environment you know the the, the sort of post-war social democratic or like or at least welfare state kind of progressivism that undergirded people's lives. And, and I think that that's, you know, and funded the arts and, you know, made, made a certain amount of space for that sort of thing. And I think that that's, there's, there's something in the American experience that is, that can be mirrored if not directly. Um, and the, the Thatcherite smashing up of institutions and the slashing of the social safety net and the kicking people head first. Through the slash net to the see how far down the bottom is. That's certainly something that is mirrored in the American experience. But I think like definitely, you know, that's a big part of it. And there's an there's a the sort of the ideological language around it of there is no alternative. There's no such thing as society. The end of history. Like I think that there's a there's a reason why we see the the closing of both political and cultural horizons kind of in tandem with each other and maybe it comes maybe it becomes more obvious to us in the 90s but really you can trace the development back to capital's solution to the last major systemic crisis in the late 70s or you know even in the early 70s Um, everyone's favorite golden age for music is the 70s or the 80s anyways and maybe there's some connection to that but i think i think that's why i like the term the slow cancellation of the future Because you can find exceptions to what becomes a more and more general rule every year. But, uh, you know, that gets kind of, Kevin, to your point is you said, like, you can only analyze your own life. And I don't think that that's the case. We don't feel that way when we think about political trends or, you know, we look historically at, at a lot of things, at everything. And, you know, I wasn't around for when labor was a workers' party that had social democratic reforms on the agenda. I mean, there's there's a new chance of that as a, as a sort of a political struggle inside labor. But I wasn't around for it, right? I was around for Tony Blair. But I know about old labor. You know, I wasn't around for the New Deal, but I know about it. You know, I, I can get a sense of what things have been like in the time before I was alive. Um, and more importantly, I think, when we just uh, examine our own lives... You just think about the the temporal malaise as a a description of the way that we feel in our lives. You know, we constantly talk about alienation and the sort of dragging on sense of time and the sort of the way that time creeps at a burdensome pace. And I think people feel it. I think what we're trying to do is figure out a way to analyze what we feel by rooting it in what we know about history.
0: And I think that he doesn't really go into this very much, but this is just observable uh, when looking at the film industry, that there has been a complete lack of originality in any of the major studios in creating film in general for quite some time now. Everything is an adaptation of something else or a remake of something else or something that is directly ju- a complete rip-off. And I, some of them were enjoyable, too, you know? Oh, sure. But they're completely unoriginal. And just because what is produced is based on what sells, and you have corporations with board members that are deciding what gets produced, you've got the safe bet being made. And this goes for music as well. So, so music and film got you know, something that we know is going to sell because it appeals to something that people, like like nostalgically, it appeals to people nostalgically. Or it appeals to something that we know sells. Like like the, the way that they test endings for movies now and whichever one tests better, they will go ahead and put that in. Or like if they don't like, if people don't like the way that Sonic the Hedgehog looks in the commercial, <laughs> they'll go ahead and redo the animation for the whole fucking movie before they release it. You know, it's... It's uh, production of art by algorithm and means testing, you know?
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's not even just, uh, like, banking on people's nostalgia. It is, but, like, Disney's doing a whole string of live-action films uh, that just, like, are, are thoroughly unnecessary. I say that as someone who has already watched and enjoyed, too, but uh, could have absolutely lived without them. Yeah, um, I do
1: all sorts of unnecessary the, shit.
3: Yeah, hell yeah, that's what's good. Um, at at any rate, they know that like these are good storylines that kids will enjoy because um, they're timeless. Because they take place in different times or settings, um, and fantasy is cool. Um, and, but they know that the animation is not something that reads to this generation of of kids who like have no concept of. Uh, like what late eighties, early, early to mid nineties animation is, um, like could not be more indifferent to it. Um, so just remarket it, repurpose it. And then their parents will come and all of the, uh, millennials and young Gen Xers will take their kids for, to experience something that, that is not new at all, but is, you know, being marketed as something new.
0: Did any of you guys ever see that Ready Player One movie? No, no I didn't. No. watch No, no. Okay, I, I watched it on a on a flight, and it was fucking terrible. It was one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. But what that movie is, and I think Mark Fisher mentioned this this in the uh, in the lecture, is it's basically this dystopian near future world where everything is fucking terrible, and people are living in like shanty towns made of junk. But they go into this virtual reality world and compete in games and, you know, basically have like a second life online in a world that is populated entirely with cultural icons from like the 80s. And like, you know, the, the dude drives around on a DeLorean and like, you know, there are video game characters from the 80s. There's like scenes from movies that they interact in and basically the movie was about a dystopia is a a very meta movie because the movie was about a dystopia that sort of exists now, uh, on a small, on, on, you know, a much less drastic scale, but it is, is essentially just a mirror, like looking at the, the film industry and the culture industry, the modern culture industry, you know, this terrible shitty movie that relies on nostalgia is about a shitty existence where nothing is new and everything relies on nostalgia. <laughs> and it, I mean, it was a horrible, horrible movie, but I just thought that it was like, this movie was sort of criticizing Hollywood on accident. And, uh, you know, hell,
1: man, it, it uh, might've been criticizing yeah. Hollywood on purpose, but it was,
0: uh, just not very well.
1: Well, it was still Steven Spielberg. It was still, Hey, Hey, you know, like descent cells, you can, uh, you can make a lot of money off of, being sympathetic to the fact that people are sick of you if you tell their story back to them in the way that comforts them and makes them feel a little bit more at ease right that's the role of nostalgia and it can be this sort of sense of rebellion like nostalgia as rebellion can also be packaged and sold back to you and it actually seems to be it seems to work just fine for whoever's trying to make whatever it might be music movies or uh, politics you know like political programs even though even the most forward-thinking ones we have really they they project a vision of the future, which is almost as good as we once had it.
3: Well, dissent sells, especially when the enemy is so vague that you could finesse it to be and fit any person, right? So you leave it vague and open enough to be able to identify evil but not identify what that evil is because people walk away from, I mean, pick your poison, right? The Hunger Games or even like Harry Potter or uh, what's the one with the, the the women and the, why can't Handmaid's Tale?
0: Steel Magnolias. <laughs>
3: oh my God, listen, do not <laughs> start. The Witches of Waverly that... Place. <laughs> Steel Magnolias is a perfect film. Feel free to at me. Um, the high point of human uh,
1: <laughs> cultural achievement. Uh,
3: well, yes, Dolly Parton. Anyway, uh, I will go into a rant about 9 to 5 where the the villains in 9 to 5 are very clear. They're the bosses, right? Who you have to kill. Okay, so anyway, point being that all of the, this like dystopian um, fiction and like young adult fiction leaves it open-ended enough where people can walk away with very wildly different conclusions which it's art that's bound to happen, um, but it is being created in a way that is deliberately done.
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Culture serves as a point of reference for what's happening. You know, like, I, I like that Fisher, he points He points out um, Marshall Berman, who wrote All That Is Solid Melts Into Air, and he defines modernity as a permanent state of impermanence. Contrast that with post-modernity, which is a permanent state of permanence um and i think it's it's really interesting that the political slogan of the end of history of of there is no alternative like encapsulates kind of like a desire for a permanent state of permanence where there is no past or future there's only the present and we only understand the sense of the future as being the present but like more sophisticated just like the way that the the latest newest innovation is a the 10th iteration of the iphone which is just a smarter <laughs> not even smarter but a faster version of the one that was previously invented uh and the same thing with the past where we look at like our films about the past are just there there are films about today where we just we we take all our language and our way of relating to to people and we sort of project them into these sort of form of the past but not so much the content but the conversation i think is it all of that's useful to talk about what it feels like and looks like, but I guess uh, it, it it can be um, a limited conversation if what we're talking about is, man, they don't make movies the way they should, right? Or I think that people maybe can think that, you know, what we're talking about is, like, the music that you like sucks, and I listen to, the like, cool old music that that still had some fire in it or whatever. And I don't, you know, th- I think that that misses the point.
0: Right. Because – I like new music that sucks. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> what. One of my favorite records of the last several years is Paramores After Laughter, and that is an 80s nostalgia record.
3: Oh, Um, but it's it's like perfect beginning to end. (laughs) It's a,
1: it's, it's great, but you know what it isn't? It isn't groundbreaking. It isn't, it isn't ruptural, and it doesn't even, it doesn't even try to be. And that's a, you know, you just kind of have to acknowledge that that's the case. But the question, the question really is why? Like, what is the reason why? That there does seem to be, um, and of course you can always find a, an exception, surely there's a, some some musician I haven't heard of, or some film I haven't seen that like, sure. that proves, gen- proves me wrong. It genuinely is groundbreaking or whatever, yeah. Yeah, exactly, but the point is that generally speaking, the expectation that what's about to come out is going to, you know, blow your mind, that's not, that's not the case, right? So the question is why? Um... And that goes back to what, what Chris, the first question you asked, which is, you know, is there such thing as innovation? Is, is there a constant revolutionizing of the means of production? Or are we essentially at a stage in economic development where, uh, there's nowhere else really to go other than like, you know, a slightly, a little bit faster with the same internal combustion engine that was invented a hundred years ago.
2: Right. Yeah. Which, which I think is, uh, the 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 point that I I, I think uh Mark Fisher is getting at with the you know titling this contemplation you know the slow cancellation of of the future I, I think it, uh, you may, maybe touched on this uh, earlier he he begins with uh, with you know jumping off uh, with we you know we live in um oh God fuck what is what does Fisher call it the uh, the you're talking about capitalist
1: realism. Thank you. Yes,
2: that's exactly what it. Is. And yeah, in the in the world of capitalist realism, where we live in an I- time of I- the ideological dominance of there is no alternative, uh, right? But that d- that doesn't answer what you're you're t- identifying there, Jason, which which is the. Uh, uh, the gradual pace of the grinding to a halt of cultural innovation which is what what i think he's identifying is the is the material base for the notion of there is an alternative which is the victory or the Uh, The dominance of neoliberalism, the rolling back of social democratic reforms that had been in place that produced the cultural uh, cultural dominance of or the ideological uh, dominance or the cultural moment of uh, uh, of the affect of boredom, but. Uh, which is a problem unto itself that he, he critiques uh, otherwise, but he's talking about now uh, living in the time of the rolling, the slow rolling back of these uh, uh, welfare reforms and low, slow ro- lowering of living standards of working people, which you know it's not all happening at once it's not one fell swoop and they take everything away it's just sort of like a death by a thousand cuts you know but uh you eventually bleed out after the thousand cuts are, have been have been made so he...
0: slow cancellation yeah slow order.
2: cancellation exactly and so he's identifying the 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 structural context in which this cultural saltification is is happening which i think is so much more terrifying because it's not he's not just talking about uh oh god isn't it terrible that there you know that production companies are run by boards of suits you know of empty suits who don't care about culture and uh they decide you know which bands get played on the radio or whatever Uh, uh, and that's all you get to hear is what the, what the suits tell you you're allowed to hear, but he's making such a, so much more of a damning indictment of culture, which is that the, the very field of possibilities is shrunken down, even in the minds of, in the lives of working people where, uh, we no longer have the ability to, to be creative agents in our own right, in our own working lives, because, uh, the what we're able to expect in the future, uh, our horizons are lowered, and our capacity to reproduce ourselves in the now, in the here, in the world around us is diminished. Uh, we struggle to get by more and more, and our ability to hope for the future is uh, is reduced. So that that field that of even the the demand that the corporate suits are playing to to produce their supply of cultural artifacts uh, is getting um, more and more narrow and more and more stultified. Like uh, he talks about how punk couldn't be even conceivable in uh, modern England because it came out of an era where uh, the laws around squatting and squatter's rights were radically different and you couldn't imagine punk coming into existence without uh, the reality of squatters taking over you know and creating punk houses in london and and wherever else in uh uh in the, in the in the 70s that material context doesn't exist anymore there are no more arts programs there are no more not really uh that the art schools the ac- academia itself uh is being transformed where the humanities are being um, eradicated, and what it really ex- uh, universities exist for is to produce ready made workers for the job force because that's what students want and need because they recognize the you know the d- diminishing returns of being able to go to uh, uh, you know follow their passions and pursue a, hum- uh, a degree in the humanities, but. Uh, But also that's what the the universities are being consciously restructured to produce. Like the the world of creative output is being canceled slowly and gradually, but it's being canceled. And that's, uh, I don't know, that's fucking depressing. Uh, But I was going to bring up the fact that uh, it seemed to me that Graeber, David Graeber's argument about... He seemed to be making something along the lines of a similar argument. Not exactly the same argument, a similar argument. But the the thing that he was identifying seemed to me to be uh, radically different. It wasn't a... He's not talking about uh, neoliberalism necessarily or or the period of capitalism we're in, but rather talking about the nature of capitalism itself.
0: Okay, so sort of... Parallel to what Mark Fisher is saying about the stultification and stagnation of culture, is what David Graeber is saying this art in this article of flying cars and the declining rate of profit, about technological progress coming grinding to a halt and stagnating in the starting at the at the end of the space race, but basically coming to a complete standstill in every way except for revolutionizing of surveillance technologies and uh and uh different ways to deliver content over the internet and he says that all of that begins comes to a grinding halt after the fall of the ussr and his thesis is a little bit different than mark fisher's but it's dealing with the same sort of stagnation and solidification. in
2: fact i i think they're in uh, the the theses are entirely compatible in fact I, I, I don't know maybe maybe somebody else can identify some uh, aspects of their approach to the, the issue that are are less than fully compatible but you know my readings of it seemed like they're they're compatible theories uh they in fact maybe even supplemental but um uh, this is definitely the first piece by Graber that I've read that I uh that I thought was really good. Um, yeah, this is
0: the first piece. I know I was not expecting this to be good. It's <laughs> the first
2: one I've read by David Graber that I thought was good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, exactly. And uh, I was I was really pleasantly surprised by that. But I think that so, his his thesis is that it's the the saltification is a feature or it's a consequence of capitalism itself like he identifies it's just like this is how capitalism works um and there were weird things going on for at least some period of time that like were 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 counteracting this tendency uh but what we're looking at, what we're experiencing is, is capitalism. It's not a, it's not something uh, strange or, or, you know, something that we can tweak out of it.
1: Right. I actually think that's important. There's the normal way to talk about something like neoliberalism or, you know, late capitalism or whatever we want to call it on the left is somewhat imprecise. And it does, it, it does, I think lend itself to some confusion about whether or not there are such things as kinds of capitalism. And I like that the, in the, I think it's the Graeber that refers to it as a, maybe like the latest technical phase, but that it's, you know, that there, that there is, there are tendencies in capitalism and that it, you know, it's a, it's, we're not in a new kind of capitalism, you know, relative to the one that Marx was analyzing. It's just that technological developments, um, political shifts, sort of advances and retreats in class struggle. The distance between economic crises, you know, they might herald like shifts in the techno, in the technical phases of capitalism. But, uh, yeah, I think it's right. And Graeber's right to point this out that we, we have not arrived at a dystopia. Capitalism is a dystopia. It feels dystopian because we had expectations at one point that the world, that, that the future was going to be good and it isn't. So this is,
0: this, the point that Graeber makes at the very beginning of this article is that everyone thought, you know, in the, the late sixties and the seventies or whatever, that the near future was going to be drastically different than it turned out to be. And there, most people are surprised when they think back about how wildly off their projections were. So just as kind of an experiment, I, I asked my dad today, I was like, dad, Think back to like 1970, you know, like one year after the moon landing, Um, you know, you're you're your kid, what do you think the world is going to be like in 50 years? And he thought for a second and was just like, you know, I thought we'd be like living on the moon and Mars by now. I thought we'd have colonies all over the planets and, you know, we'd be traveling the fastest of speed of light back and forth between planets. There'd be like 7-Eleven on the moon. <laughs> That's what he said. And uh, I was just like, so what do you think now? He's like, well, I think that sometimes I'm surprised by the technology that, that exists in you know personal computers and stuff. But other than that, it's kind of disappointing. And I was like, yeah, okay, exactly. And then Graber makes the point that it wasn't just like the Jetsons that were making these predictions about the future. It was smart people scientists you know like the smithsonian institution and uh, national geographic and institutions full of scientists and intelligent serious people who are predicting that you know if technology continues at this pace then you know in in a few years like who knows where we're going to be it's like unimaginable how like how far technology will have progressed and if you just look at the way that the top human speed for most of history was about 25 miles an hour. Like if you're riding on a horse, you can go about 25 miles an hour. Then by 1900, it was about hundred miles an hour, you know, with the invention of airplanes. And then in the next 70 years, speed increased until like 1970 where it was 25,000 miles an hour. Imagine that from 25 miles an hour to 25,000 miles an hour in less than a century, and then in 1970, no one has ever gone faster than that 25,000 miles an hour. And there's been a couple of instances where like the Concorde and Tupolev companies made passenger jets that went about 14 or 1,500 miles an hour, but they were too unstable and were prone to crashing. So they've reduced those. And then now we're still flying on the 747, which was invented in the 60s. Yeah, so we're still flying on the 747 and they have made some innovations like smaller seats and <laughs> less cushion and you have to pay for everything now but other than that <laughs> there haven't been a lot of uh, innovations so i mean the he he talks about how there's something drastically different that happens in the 1970s that is that begins this trend of uh, technological stagnation and he says that the space race sort of artificially inflated our hopes and dreams for what technology was going to to bring us because you had all of the resources of the state put behind coming up with new technologies to beat the Soviets. And that the Soviets being the foil for technological advancement led to these immense leaps and bounds in technology and that, you know, we beat the Soviets in 1969, right? We beat them. Well, one of the things that they, he says is that there's a joke that says that the, the moon landing was the greatest achievement of the USSR.
1: Oh, that's great.
0: But after that, the the winning of the space race, quote unquote winning, I guess we, we won because we said we won <laughs> and then stopped putting money into the space race. But, you know, after the fall of the USSR and the end of the space race, we shifted all of all of the gigantic government contracts into military research and finding better ways to kill people.
2: Well, you know there have been some innovations there. That's true. Well, Graber Graeber even even critiques uh, the innovations on on that front. The idea that there really have been uh, has been much innovation even on the on the front of the military, doesn't
1: he? Yeah, I mean I'm being a little bit glib, like the, the they haven't actually been incredibly significant other than that, you know, um, I mean, I think drone warfare like is the fact that you can pilot a drone um, as opposed to the drones that the Nazis invented in the Second World War, which you kind of had to send them on a general course. But like, you know, it's it's kind of a joke, but it's also kind of true that like there have been a lot of innovations in precision that like the same thing that that Fisher. Uh, says with regards to music and culture, which is the subtle remodulation of all that already exists, the same can be said about um, technological advances that uh, you know, when you think about the invention of radio and what that did to uh, the spread of information and for in- enabling, like, you can't, like, try to imagine the rise of fascism before radio. Right? The social implications for what radio can do are pretty profound. And then you fast forward to uh, the latest innovations in the spread of information. And it's still basically radio. It's just a.
0: Right now, what we're doing is we're recording a radio show that doesn't broadcast live over the radio, but is uploaded onto a server where you can access the radio by clicking on an yeah, app. Or- but it's still, it's the radio. It's just the delivery of the radio is has been revolutionized it,
1: it has been, it has been a subtly remodulated
0: subtly remodulated rather than revolutionized yeah I,
1: okay. I was talking about um i was talking with somebody at work about the what passes for a technological innovation so sort of a sign that we live in the future uh that we always dreamed of is that you know you can take the corporate wires app that you buy and hang, set in your kitchen and you can you know you can tell it to order a pizza for you and you can have it pre-programmed to uh you know to your favorite local pizza place and you can have your credit card added to it so you can say you know tell it to order a pizza and then it will it will do so um and that seems like really sophisticated relative to i guess when you used to have to pick up a phone and order a pizza which is, so the difference is i guess you now you don't have to talk to a person but that innovation even was sort of dealt with when you could order a pizza online like 12 years ago so it's not a—it's not like a dramatic leap in terms of what technology, like not in the way that like the invention of a steam engine or a flight or even of space travel. Uh, you know that that remodulation of flight. Uh, are, are, we but we are we have our huge... minds blown by less and less every year.
3: Well, because it is a huge innovation for people who like. Man, how do I say this in a way that is not going to get me canceled?
1: Oh, you're gonna get canceled as fuck.
3: I'm already canceled for my rant from the from the last episode which like this one is not very far off from. I mean those are innovations that like are a response to people's anxieties. People have anxieties about interacting with other people on the phone. And I mean I I know a lot of people who aren't thrilled about making phone calls. I I uh am not a huge fan either. Um but there are people with like really severe anxieties of talking on the phone with another human being and i don't say that to be insensitive to that because i i at my core very much understand where that comes from especially having had to, had to be on a phone for um work for so long um like like answering calls for a doctor's office right it, you, you get the the worst of people, oftentimes, right? But it, but it, I think in part it is a response to like people's anxieties about interacting with one another, and it serves to keep us, whether deliberately or not, further alienated. And it's responding to this problem that capitalism has created with capitalist solutions that are not actually dealing with people's anxieties and why it's so hard to interact with other humans. Um, and as someone who does relate to that um and will absolutely order through an app every single time so that I don't have to talk to someone like you know it, it's just really yeah I mean it, it's it's something I think we we really have to to think about
1: well it's just sure it's when we talk about the 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 sophistication of this forward marching civilization you know this with the defenders of capitalism say no other economic system has been able to deliver whatever and so it's worth fighting and dying for and destroying the planet for and smash just wiping whole uh you know civil, other civilizations off the map this is what we're talking about is the ability to order pizza on an app
3: yeah or go to so... therapy through text you know um Right, yeah.
0: That actually brings up another thing that he he talks about: medical innovations having been mostly in drugs that treat the symptoms of diseases rather than curing diseases. So, like you know, we well, don't want to do that. Had a no, it's no, not profitable. It, it literally is not profitable to cure diseases. And that's why, like, Cuba has a lung cancer vaccine, but the United States doesn't have it, and you have to actually break the law to go get it. But what we do have is, uh, you know, all different kinds of ways to get chemotherapy, and we've got pills that you could take to alleviate some of the symptoms of the anxiety that capitalism has given you, and the depression uh, to keep you from wanting to kill yourself because you've got no future, and you've been brutalized by a society that doesn't give a shit about you. Um, There are all kinds of innovations in that medical technology because that is where the research is. The research isn't in coming up with cures and coming up with new ways to make people's lives better. It's just coming up with ways to make money off of the things that people are suffering from. And that goes for pretty much all scientific innovation. He, He talks a little bit about the bureaucratization of the universities and the way that universities are run like through corporate management methods, which there are there is such a thing as corporate bureaucracy that is wildly inefficient and ineffective and is not more effective than state bureaucracy. You know, that's commonly accepted fallacy on the left and the right that somehow corporate bureaucracy is less inefficient than state bureaucracy. I think that that's patently yes. false. Manifestly anyway, talks, not the case. Yeah, not at all. And he talks about how um, timid, timid corporate management style of research departments keeps innovation from happening. Because in, in the past, you would have a, a room full of crazy people whose job it was to think of the craziest things that they could think of and then try to make it happen. And these people were ill-fitted to, I mean, just think about like Albert Einstein or like, uh, what was his name? The schizophrenic math guy uh, that they made the movie about. Uh, anyway. uh, Doc Brown. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that one. No. Um, anyway, so you think about people that are ill-suited to interacting in society and are just these eccentric oddballs that, they just put them in a room, threw money at them, told them to come up with crazy ideas. And they did. And that is how we got innovations. And now if you have a crazy idea, you're more than likely going to be told by whoever your corporate manager is within your science department that that's never going to get funding. You'll never be able to write a grant that will get you money for that. And it won't be profitable for the university to pursue that, so they're going to pursue something. Right, exactly. Safe. I,
2: th- I think that's his his main point. I, I I think in the whole article is that the uh, innovation comes from giving people resources that they need and setting them free.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: And and innovation is stifled by two. two he identifies two things: bureaucracy and competition. Uh, you know, marketability, right. you know, competition for you know market success, which is pa- a thing that can be packaged and sold. Um.
1: Well, when you think about Fisher's point about the role of the welfare state and arts funding in creativity in music production, it's a similar point. It's a similar set of parameters for discussing the other the other side of this question, which is the the superstructural as opposed to the base question. But it's, too, it's, it's a similar analysis, I think, for a reason. They, they, Kevin, you said they run parallel, and they, they are similar to, to one another for sure.
0: Graeber's an anarchist, and he's got, you know, no love for the Soviet Union. But one of the things that he talks about is like, you know, the Soviet Union was a stultifying bureaucracy as well, or had a stultifying bureaucracy as well. But the fact that technologies in the Soviet Union weren't being produced for, to, to be marketed, led to a sort of ability to come up with yeah, crazy he, ideas. Uh, I
2: thought he had a really interesting point where he talked about, well, at least in the Soviet Union, th- there were some really ambitious and creative bureaucrats who were making decisions about uh, allocation of social resources. That They were given a, a, an amount of freedom to use these social resources to, to really innovate, and they did, and they set their sights really high.
1: I mean, yeah, I think so I think a lot of that's true. But I also think that, um, you know, one of the interesting things that we've done, you know, in the course of doing this podcast is revisit a lot of assumptions about the Soviet Union. And I think that, you know, there are periods and phases and there are relative degrees of, you know, Chris, what did you say? Bureaucratic stultification. Yeah. Like, I think that that's true. But I think that uh, I think we ought to be wary of of help of perpetuating any notion uh, or let's say we should be wary of, of perpetuating too much of the notion that uh, of, a, of a Soviet Union, which is just like one big uh, office space type environment. Monolith. Yeah, it's not a monolith. Um, which is not... I mean, sorry, I, I guess I don't really so, know what the point here is.
0: No, like I, I know what you're saying. So the example that he gives, too, is he says even in the period of rapid decline of the 1980s, you had Soviet scientists coming up with plans to try to harvest spirulina to end world hunger or to put satellites in space that would uh, have solar panels that could beam electricity to the surface. And now that you mention that, it the, the first thing that I think of is the, the period of opening up that happened in the 80s. It was sort of a last ditch effort to try to save the Soviet Union. And I think that there was a lot of room for innovation and room for uh, new ideas that might not have been able to be implemented in the Brezhnev sure, era. Sure, just like,
1: just like how the Khrushchev thaw is a period which really does open up for experimentation and creativity uh, relative to the Stalin era.
0: So, like, I guess there's an article been going around about how... Brezhnev basically quashed any kind of idea of developing like a Soviet cyber sin to help plan the economy and Which is ludicrous. that he said that that it was not historically materialist enough, so the idea that something that would have definitely helped them deal with waste and bureaucratic inefficiency of the Soviet Union was you know was quashed because it was too innovative
1: right i mean it's not it's not all that different than the corporate culture that we're you know we're analyzing today in the in the the, uh where do we live (laughs) america (laughs) (laughs) graber concludes by saying we're not going to set up domes on like we're not going to colonize mars and get in touch with aliens or any of the other futuristic things which we fantasize about or at least that we yeah i guess we still fantasize about those things within the confines of capitalism and he's right yeah and uh you know he 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 concludes with you know only then only when technology is sort of marshaled toward human need that, that that can only happen once we sort of uh, break free of the bonds of capitalism and we we established a society based on the egalitarian distribution of wealth and power and like i think that that's all true right but i i do think uh a lot of left-wing i mean this this is the problem with the left that we uh that we come from which is which is the 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 idea of like raising our sights higher than just well you know the problem is capitalism like that that is it that is an issue that we come up against when we, we've we've gotten pretty good at analyzing what's wrong with society, but it's really difficult to talk about horizons, you know, and this one thing I appreciated about the, the Fisher lecture, as opposed to the Graeber one, because he, he does take a stab at making a suggestion, which is rare for Fisher. Cause he's even more depressed than any of us are. Don't you know, he killed himself. It's not yeah. very funny, but you know, he concludes his, 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 uh, lecture by, sort of appealing to people to not retreat into nostalgia, that like he says that rather than invoking an actual past and comparing it to now, we should look back at the visions of the future that we had in the past, you know, that we should, he says that we should sort of have a politicized melancholia and refuse to adjust to the present moment, even if it's going to, even if it does feel like it's going to carry on forever, forever. So he sort of he sort of proposes a like not just a political maladjustment to the moment, but also um, if we have to take inspiration from what we, what we know from the past, it shouldn't be like oh we had the Soviet Union and that was better, or we had social democracy and that was better, or we had 50% unionization and that was better. But it was when we had those things, what was the future we imagined? Because that will be better, and that's the the image that we ought to start to politicize and publicize. Um, the new banner to carry forward. It might still be the old banner that we carried forward before, but it's not where it stopped. It's where it wanted to go.
0: Well, one of the things we didn't talk about was the fact that the means of production haven't been revolutionized at the rate that we thought that they would be because of the shifting of production to the global South and basically the return to older, less safe, less innovative forms of production that we could pay people less money to do instead of revolutionizing the means of production and thus causing the tendency of the rate of profit to fall.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a really important um, and and again I think one of the things which I often feel ill-equipped for um, because of the relative dearth of political discussion on the left about uh, oh well discussion of political economy you know like what, what is actually happening and, and what what the nature of production and and of distribution actually looks like so we talk about automation and then we we have this imaginary we, we imagine that automation is going to like replace jobs and then we're all going to be out of jobs and then then we're left with this weird conclusion which is like what actually what kind of society is that where there's no more uh, surplus value being extracted from labor and it sounds like a terrible society if it still relies on us to buy stuff you know if there's if there is still a ruling class but it wouldn't be a capitalist society Um, and i think the capitalists know that right which is why automation actually doesn't mean replacing jobs it just means replacing some jobs
0: Right. And if we look at the fact that 95% of robot technology is funneled through the Pentagon, we're not likely to get job replacing automation anytime soon. We might get like way smarter drones that can kill people way more effectively. But, you know, we're not going to have like robot maids or. actually functioning self-driving public transit or anything like that anytime soon. And we're definitely not going to have all of our, you know, menial tasks being taken over by robots because like I think what Graeber mentions here is that like having a a gigantic unemployed underclass is definitely something that the that the capitalist class is trying to avoid.
1: You, right beyond beyond the, what we would know as the reserve army of labor,
0: I mean that, that is the reserve army of labor is necessary for capitalism to drive down wages. But the reserve army of angry laborers that vastly outnumbers those who are actually working would definitely be a problem.
1: Sure, and if you if you look at like automation and the replacement of jobs. You know, the most obvious example to me and the one that I think at least that I encounter most often is like the self-checkout as opposed to the checkout clerk um, or the ATM as opposed to the bank teller. But also like those aren't those aren't jobs which are productive of value. Um, They play a sort of secondary role of facilitating the, you know, the realization of value. Right. But the production of value, I think you, you mentioned it. Just a little bit earlier, it's like the the factory system and the and the production of value that we've had since the dawn of the factory system is still relatively the same. It's still in place. The technological advances are about speed up, about the extraction of more labor from fewer people, but it's not about the replacement of human people uh, of human labor. Uh, There aren't robots digging uh, digging up the iron ore and running the smelters and then you know, loading up the trucks and then shipping stuff across the world. But there is a self-checkout. So like, you know, they're not going to lose profit by not paying somebody to scan the items, but they would lose profit if they actually replaced the the value-producing jobs, uh, you know, at the point of production.
0: Right. And um, Graeber says that this is conscious on the part of the ruling class. And he points to two writers, Alvin toffler and george gilder who wrote respectively future shock in 1970 and wealth and poverty in 1981 that argued that we should guide tech away from directions that challenge the structure of authority as it as it exists and he argues that the capitalist class has been doing this, taking this advice seriously, because you had someone like Newt Gingrich, who has been very influential in the creation of the post-history world. He's been on the the conservative end of the neoliberal project in shaping that conservative vision for the future, and he draw drew heavily from both of these guys that Graeber mentions. He one of the things, one of the claims that he makes is that. He says, given the choice of making capitalism seem to be the only possible economic system and one that would possibly transform it into a viable long-term economic system, that it will always choose the former. So rather than trying to create a system that is sustainable, that will give people comfortable lives and make people happy, it will it would prefer to convince us that there's no other way while forcing us into further immiseration.
1: Yeah, I think that checks out. (laughs) получно вернуться на священную землю нашей родины страны советов.